How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power on the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. Those are verses 40 to 43 of Psalm 78, verses 40 to 72 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, August the 2nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look at the book of Judges, looking at the, the life of Gideon uh, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 18. In the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And remember yesterday, what had happened was is that um, Gideon, also called Jerubbabel, after, after this action, what he did was he tore down the altar of his father, the altar to Baal, and the Asherah pole that was beside it, and then he burned it down and he sacrificed to the Lord in that place. And, and that angered the Midianites and the Amalekites. And so he, he was renamed, well, he has a second name, Jerubbabel, which means that the, uh, the, let the Lord contend for himself. So let Baal contend for himself. Jerub Baal. <clears throat> so anyway, that, that's Gideon. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. Now remember yesterday, what he had done was he sent word to multiple tribes in the region around him, to Asher and Dan and Naphtali and Zebulun and Manasseh. And they came to help him fight against the Midian and the Midianites and the Amalekites who were coming against him for the act of tearing down the altar. So the Midianites was north of them on, by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Let, lest Israel boast over me, saying, quote, my own hand has saved me. In other words, there's too many of y'all. You would take credit for the victory. And I wouldn't get the credit for the victory if I let you go up with as many people as you have right now. So the so he said, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. That's a lot of people to walk away in fear. Now, if you look at this whole idea of letting people walk away, you go back to Deuteronomy 20. And it says, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. And, and so they're, they're constantly intended, intended to recall that the, the issue is that, that God's fighting their battles for them. He uses them. They have a part to play. They've got to be obedient. And they've got to go up. But here, what it says is that when you go to battle, this is Deuteronomy 20. So the people, the, the, the officers are spoke to the, supposed to speak to the people and say, is there anybody here who's built a new house and not yet dedicated it? And if you raise your hand for that, then, well, you can go home. Because it's not right that you did the work of building the house, saving for the house and all that stuff, and then didn't get the enjoyment of it. So you go on home. Is there anybody who's planted a vineyard and has not yet enjoyed its fruit? If so, you go home because you've done all the work. You need to get the enjoyment of this. And is there a man who's betrothed a wife and not taken to her? So if you're, if you're engaged to be married, then you go home. And, and you get to go home probably until you've fathered a child or some specified period of time. And then finally, if there's a man who's fearful and faint-hearted, he can go home. And so the situation here is, is that those other three situations don't apply because it's a defensive war. So those situations don't apply. But God's making an exception for those who are afraid. And I'll bet you Gideon didn't think there's 22,000 out of 32,000 who were afraid. 
And then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I'll test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. He's not telling them what the test is yet. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon. I mean, he's already probably fearful, because we know that Gideon had feared the people before he went out and tore down the altar and the Asherah. So he's probably afraid now, because he's gone from 32,000 people to 10,000 people in the blink of an eye. But... If you're afraid, hey, I'd rather you go home. You're not going to cause problem in the field that way. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, set him by himself. Otherwise, everyone who kneels down to drink. So you're going to have two camps, right? Those who lap water with, like a tongue, with his tongue like a dog, or those who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. He... Gideon's probably thinking at this point, okay, we only lost 300 in this cut. So now I've still got 9,700. That wasn't as bad as I thought it might be. So then what happens is, is that the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I'll save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others, every man to his home. So Gideon is going to, in one day, watched about almost 42,000 people walk away from his army. And or 32,000, sorry, 32,000 people walk away from his army in, in one fell swoop. Um, he's left with 300 guys. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. So these 300 guys, uh, they have no fear at all. These guys, these guys are people you're going to respect because these 300 men are willing to go into battle with just 300 men. So they took their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So he had the, the, uh, the, the geographical advantage, because he's on the hill and they're in the valley. The same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So I'm telling you, here's what you're going to do. I want you to go down there. But if you're afraid, go on down there now. Take your servant with you so you can hear what's being said in the camp, and your hands will be strengthened for battle based on what you hear. So what do you think Gideon does? Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. In other words, he was afraid. Who could blame him? He's got 300 guys now, and he somehow got to, got to win the battle against the Midianites. And the, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. He's got 300 men. And their camels were without number, as the sand that's in the seashore in abundance. Where we heard that language before, well, that is Genesis language. That's God's promise language to Abraham, that his descendants will be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Here, it's the camels of the men who are coming against them that are that numerous. And, and the people themselves are like locusts in abundance. Gideon has 300 guys. He had reason to fear. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, There's, This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He did the right thing because God had already given him what he, what he needed. God told him to go down and do this. And he went down and got 
the word that he had, and now he's ready to go down to fight. As he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand, which is exactly what the man said. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, so he's got three groups of 100, and put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, I'm not sure why he inserted himself in that. But the reality is, is this is the plan God's come up with in, in, in similar ways to the plan that he came up in Jericho. And so these are part of the people who are the unconquered people in the land after Joshua. So th- this is all part of the conquest of the land. It's just being extended through this period of the judges. In the gospel today, remember, we had just read the prologue to John where he laid out who Jesus was and what John's role was in the coming of Messiah. So he has is, he is situated Jesus as with God and was God in the beginning, and then he situates John as the herald of the Messiah. Not the Messiah, the herald of the Messiah. And now he's going to go further with that little statement about John here. This is the testimony of John, when the, John the Baptist, when the Pharisee, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Because the presumption would be that that's exactly what they wanted to know. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered him, no. So they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So the first three figures that they have associated with, first the Messiah, then Elijah, and then the prophet, those are all end times people. All of them are the one who will come in the end of time, the expectation is Elijah will come as a forerunner for the Messiah. Jesus is going to say later of John, Elijah has already come. And he's saying, yes, John was Elijah in that sense. But but John's saying, I'm none of those people. Well, then they, they, they have to know something, right? They've been sent by the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. And it is a little bit odd because what he said is, is that I'm not Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the, the way of the Lord. What is that statement about? Make straight the way of the Lord. Well, what it is, is, is that what would happen in those times was that when a king or the emperor would come and visit, then the roads would be straightened. Everything would be literally straight, and the, the, the hills would be brought low, and the valleys would be filled in so that there would be a highway across which the king could pass. So he was safe from everything, and so he could see all around the splendor of his own kingdom. So here, that's what John says, I'm the guy making straight the way of the Lord. So he says, I am an end times guy. I'm pointing to making the highway straight for the king to come into Jerusalem on it. So they asked him, why are you baptizing if you're none of these people? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So he says at some level, I'm pointing to the coming of the king. 
So, but he's not Elijah, and he's not the prophet. The prophet is the one from uh, Deuteronomy who is, who is to come. Moses says, will come, and they're to listen to that prophet. The, that's the one that the Samaritans are looking for, this prophet like Moses. All these end times figures, and, and John says, I'm none of the above. Jesus says later he is. He was Elijah, but the, he's filling the role of Elijah. But, but John says, no, this is my job. My job is to point the way. And, and so they want to know, why are you baptizing them? If you're none of these really important people, then why are you baptizing? You're making something of yourself by baptizing. And John says, I'm making little of myself by saying I'm a voice. That's all I am. He's not going to presume to be any of those things. He's not going to say, I'm any of these things. He's making so little of himself, but they say, by what you're doing, you're making much of yourself by this baptizing thing. So John just points away and says, hey, I'm not doing anything of particular importance. I'm just baptizing with water. The one who is already here is the one you really ought to be looking for and paying attention to because I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. A Jewish slave in a Jewish household couldn't be asked to do that. That's how demeaning it was considered to be. If you sold yourself into slavery, there were boundaries around what you could be asked to do as a slave of one of your kinsmen. And this is one of the things you couldn't be asked to do. It was thought of as too demeaning. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for this one. In the epistle, uh, not the, well, the epistle in the, in the book of the Acts that we have reading we have today, Peter and John, now this is after the day of Pentecost. We finished all that, and then we, we see what happened over the next period of time. The Lord continued to add to their number daily. And now Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So it's late in the day. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, he's always been lame, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. He's a man, so he's not a boy. So he, he's old enough that, that he's been uh, uh, lame for a long time at this point. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So look at me, I'm going to give you money, is what he thinks is happening here. But Peter says, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Well, if you've lived very long in this world, you know that that's not how anything works. This guy, if he'd been lame from birth, I mean, I have a brother-in-law who had a, a, a problem. He had a, a, something on his spine, and it kept him from being able to walk. Well, a- after a long period of time and being in intensive physical rehab for weeks, he was able to take about 20 steps. So that we know that you've got to do all this rehab, all this physical therapy and everything else in order to, if you've just been sedentary a little while and unable to walk, if you've had knee surgery, it's going to take you a while to learn to walk again. It, there, there's all kinds of things that, that you have to overcome, and you have to be retaught how to walk. This guy st- immediately stands, and his feet and ankles are made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. This is not some uh, minor miracle. No, this guy who has never walked in his life now is leaping and walking and praising God. 
In other words, he got it. He knew who healed him. He knew Peter and John didn't heal him. He knew that the Lord himself had healed him and didn't just heal him tolerably. No, healed him completely. Gave him everything that he would have had to work for a very, very long time. In any kind of physical therapy situation today, I don't know how long it would have taken this guy to get to the point where he could leap, much less walk. I mean, standing would be a, a miracle at some point, putting pressure on your feet, being able to, to bear a little bit of weight first. I mean, this would have taken a long, long season of time to overcome. But no, this is overcome immediately, completely by the healing of God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. In other words, that's the guy. That's the guy who's been here every single day, because that's what it says. They laid him daily at the gate of the temple. So all the people who came and went around the temple would have seen this guy day after day and would have given him alms and all that because he would have qualified to receive alms. They would have taken pity on him, and it would have been a good work on their part. But he's also performing a good work because you're, you're commanded to give charity, so it's also considered blessed to be the one who receives the charity because you provided the opportunity to fill a, a commandment. So that's the way that Judaism looks at that. It's not a curse that you're receiving uh, alms. No, it's actually a, a blessing. You're doing the greater work is the way they interpret this whole thing because there's a commandment there. And if there's nobody to give alms to, then you can't fulfill the mitzvah. And so to fulfill the mitzvah requires that person to be there. So it's a blessing and a mercy of God that that person is there. And you give thanks for them because they give you an opportunity to fulfill the commandment. So this guy now is no longer able to do this, but he was somebody they probably at some level had looked forward to seeing because he enabled them to do what God had commanded. So they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's because it would have been added during Solomon's time, this portico would have been. So it, it, what, what happens is, is that Peter and John have the, or Peter at least, has the faith to speak in the name of Jesus. He has heard the Lord and now steps out in that faith believing that God wants to heal this guy in the same way that Gideon steps out in faith with 300 men against a people who are so numerous, they're considered like locusts and whose camels alone are considered like sand on the seashore. So it's this step in faith, and John makes that step in faith too, and he makes it in the same way that both these guys do as well, and that is to say that it's not about him, it's about, it's not about me, it's about him. So he's pointing to something greater than himself, and that's the thing we always need to do. We need to have the humility of John but also the faith of John to know that what I'm doing is an important work and it's given to me by God. To have that humility that sometimes can look like fear, but, but it's the humility that says, I know I'm incapable of doing these things that God's called me to do, but I, so, but I believe in faith that I'm called to do this. And then being willing to step out in that faith in your own humility so that you'll know all along the way that, that if God doesn't show up and do something, this is not going to go well, but he's promised that he will.